Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard... Some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The word of the Lord. All right, good morning, guys. Welcome to Trailhead Church. Um, Happy Mother's Day. This is a, uh, a day, obviously, where we have the opportunity to celebrate our moms and, and uh, to celebrate motherhood. It's a complex day because um, anytime you start talking about motherhood, you're really stepping into um, an incredibly emotionally loaded minefield because we all have different experiences. And so this morning, um, I decided this is something I've seen um, over the last couple of years. Uh, a blogger named Amy Young actually wrote um, a liturgy for Mother's Day, and so I've adapted that for this morning, and I want to read to you uh, a relaxed liturgy, in a sense, of celebration for Mother's Day. To those who gave birth this year to their first or next child, we celebrate with you. To those who lost a child this year, we mourn with you. To those who are in the trenches with little ones every day and wear the badge of food stains, we appreciate you. To those who experienced loss through miscarriage, failed adoptions, or running away, we mourn with you. To those who walk the hard path of infertility, fraught with pokes, prods, tears, and disappointment, we walk with you, though often imperfectly. To those who are foster moms, mentor moms, and spiritual moms, we need you. To those who have warm and close relationships with your children, we celebrate you. To those who have disappointment, heartache, and distance with your children, we sit with you. To those who lost their mothers this year or in years past, we grieve with you. To those who experienced abuse at the hands of your own mother, we acknowledge your experience. To those who lived through driving tests, medical tests, and the overall testing of motherhood, we are better for having you in our midst. To those who are single and long to be married, 
and mothering your own children. We mourn that life has not turned out the way you longed for it to be. To those who step-parent, foster-parent, or adopt, we walk with you in these complex paths. To those who envisioned lavishing love on grandchildren, yet that dream is not to be, we grieve with you. To those who will have emptier nests in the upcoming year, we grieve and rejoice with you. To those who placed children up for adoption, we commend you for your selflessness and remember how you hold that child in your heart. To those of you who have had an abortion, we share grace with you. To those of you who are pregnant with new life, both expected and surprised, we anticipate with you. This Mother's Day, we walk with you. Mothering is not for the faint of heart, and we have real warriors in our midst. This morning, we remember you. Let's just take a minute and pray. Father God, I thank you for the gift of motherhood. I thank you, Lord, for um, the complex way in which mothering reflects your character, your love, your selflessness, your giving, your dedication. And Lord, I pray for those of you who, for those here who are celebrating the joy of it, those here who are um, grieving the loss of it, those here who are dealing with the complexity of it. I pray, Lord, that your grace would meet each one of us where we are. May you be glorified, may we be blessed, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you guys, this morning we are in the last week of our Raised series, Raised Doubting the Resurrection. Um, Next week we're going to be uh, jumping back into our study of Galatians, uh, the fight for freedom. Uh, But this week we're going to try and and wrap up well. Endings are pretty important, aren't they? Yes. Some of you graduated this weekend. Congratulations. Endings are pretty important important, right? And they're worth celebrating. Um, But the reality is a great story can be ruined by a lousy ending. Um, Any of you gone to a movie where you were just deeply disappointed, right? Like the Matrix trilogy, Matrix, I love the movie, right? One of my favorite movies of all time. Uh, Phenomenal, right? And then they turned it into a trilogy. That was a mistake. First movie, awesome. Second movie, eh, third movie, what, right? I mean, it's like, what did you just do to this incredible story? Um, some of you might have been Losties at one point, right? Lauren and I used to love the TV show Lost, and, and we would watch this thing. Um, and, and man, talk about generating conversations, man. It was a super generator of conversations, like water cooler conversations. Everybody had theories. Everybody had an idea. What's really going on behind the scenes, right? This thing had everything. It had, it had smoke monsters and time travel and a really annoying love triangle, a great bad guy, a guy named John Locke that was anything but rational. I mean, it was, it was incredible, right? And then that ending, right? And I'm not going to give it away, but you're like, what? Right? It's kind of like when I was an English teacher and my students would write these creative essays and they would be like creating these incredibly dramatic, like crazy stories, right? And I was walking down the street and then, and then this happened and then, and then UFOs came and then everything started burning and then, oh, and then I woke up, right? They, just, they don't know how to land the thing, right? They don't know how to end it. So they just end it with this, this non-resolution, right? It is so disappointing. A bad ending ruins 
a good story, but every great story has a great ending. Fight Club, The Usual Suspects, if you're the romantic type, The Notebook, right? The ending makes a good story great. Today, we're going to wrap up our series by looking at the end of the story. And we're going to be asking a simple question, why should I want this stuff to be true? All this stuff about Jesus rising from the dead, what exactly is so good about this news? Here's the thing, you guys, if Jesus was raised from the dead, that event is the hinge on which history turns. It is the plot twist that guarantees an incredible ending. All right, we've been sitting in Matthew 28 over the last four weeks. We have unpacked the entire thing. This morning, I want to look honestly at just a single sentence. Uh, It is toward the end in verse 18. This is right after, of course, the resurrection. Jesus appears to his disciples in Galilee, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I want to focus on this simple statement this morning because what he's saying is anything but simple, right? Jesus is basically saying all authority, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. It's a fairly um, complex and confusing statement, especially considering the broader testimony of Scripture, right? When we read the Bible, what we find is that the Bible teaches that, that Jesus preexisted as God. There's this thing called the Trinity, right? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three who's, one what, right? Jesus is the, the second person of the Trinity, right? We see that clearly at the beginning of John's gospel. John chapter 1 says, in the beginning was the Word, uh, the logos, the, this is a Greek word that means the concept, the thought, the expression, right? And the word was with God and the word was God. There's that Trinitarian tension, right? One in essence, different in personhood and personality, right? He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. So he was the agency of creation, Jumping to verse 14 of John 1, and the word, the logos, the thought, the expression of the essence of God became flesh. So clearly when he's speaking of the word, he's speaking poetically of Jesus. Became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Jesus became human. Theologians put it this way, remaining what he was, he became what he was not. Think about that. Remaining what he was, God, in all of his power and in all of his majesty and all of his glory with all of his, with all of his attributes, right? Remaining what he was, he became what he was not. He became human. So what does this mean and how does it relate to authority, right? So when he says, all authority has been given to me, like he was already God. What could you give him that he didn't already have? He he was already like the creator of everything. What what does Jesus mean? Like now I've been raised from the dead. All authority has been given to me. How are we supposed to interpret this? Well, to understand it, we're going to need to flip back to the beginning of the story. 
We need to get the context of how Jesus fits into the broader story of Scripture. So which means we're going to have to go back to Genesis chapter 1. So take your Bibles, okay? We're flipping all the way to the beginning, okay? So you're flipping to the left. In our Bibles, it is page 1, okay? So flip all the way over to the left. We're going to the very beginning of the story, I want to look at uh, Genesis 1. All right, Genesis chapter 1. Verse 26 through 28. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. There's that plural speaking, right? One God, many voices. Trinity even hinted at the beginning of the story. Let God said, let us make man in our image After our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of heaven, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over all the creeping things that creep on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Keep your finger there, okay? What we looked at is the creation of Adam, Adam and Eve, first parents. And you guys are like, seriously, we we believe in Adam and Eve? Wasn't that like a fairy tale? Here's the thing. Jesus talks about Adam as a real person, and his word's good enough for me, okay? And so we're going to be treating this this morning as history, right? So Adam and Eve created in the likeness of God. All right, take a look at this verse. This is from 1 Corinthians 15, verses 45 through 49. So we're going to be juggling some ideas here. Stick with me. All right, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul's speaking about the resurrection. The whole chapter is about the resurrection, And in verse 45, he says this, Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. Right? That's what we just read about. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. The first man was from earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Now, we're going to unpack this a little bit, but 1 Corinthians 15 is is an extended discussion about the importance of the resurrection of Jesus. In fact, Paul basically says, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, man, we have no hope. We are to be most pitied, right? This is an incredibly important topic. And in this passage specifically, Paul is comparing Jesus to Adam. And I want to focus on a few key phrases in these verses. Notice, first of all, that Paul never says the name of Jesus. He doesn't call him by his proper name. Instead, he calls him the last Adam in comparison to the first man, Adam. What does that mean? Why would Paul, instead of talking about Jesus, give him the title last Adam? All right. God. When he created Adam and Eve, created Adam and Eve in his own likeness, right? John chapter 1, remember? Everything that was made was made through Jesus, right? That basically means that Adam was created in the likeness of Jesus, right? The Word was the agency of creation, Jesus himself. He created Adam. And then then he gave him a job to do in Genesis 1, right? In Genesis 1, he basically said, look... I've given you all of these things around you. I want you to steward them, right? So, so all the fish of the sea and the birds of heaven and, and the livestock over the earth, right? All these things are under your dominion, right? They're, they're under your stewardship, right? And, and then he goes on um, 
and says, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Essentially what he's saying is, look, I've, I've given you the gift of creation, Adam, Adam and Eve. The gift of creation is your canvas, right? When Adam and Eve were created, remember they were placed in a garden, right? We call it the Garden of Eden. What is a garden? A garden is a cultivated place of wildness. It's a place where God basically primed the pump of culture, right? He gave them a head start. He said, look, here's all the raw materials. I'm going to show you how this is done. Here's a garden. A garden is a place where, where all the wildness is tamed and ordered and cultured and, and artistically shaped. He put them in this place and then said, now, take care of what I've given you and expand it. This is your job. Be a steward of the created order, right? Stewardship is, um, is this role of, of authority and relationship. In fact, we see that in the very next chapter. Um, so turn over to Genesis chapter 2, very next page. Genesis 2, verse 19. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man, to Adam, to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. Um, we talked about this a little bit last week. Naming indicates um, something fairly important, right? What do you name? You name your kids. You, you, you name your first or possibly second car, maybe third, I don't know. Maybe you still name your cars. Your computer, your iPod, um, right? You, you name your, 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 the things that you have a relationship with, things that you are tied to, but it's more than that, you guys. Naming is an act of authority. Because in naming something, you are giving it an identity. Parents name their children. That is more than just putting a little tag on the back of their neck where you can grab them and say, oh yeah, you're Steve, you're going to, you know what I'm saying? Like you are actually, in a sense, starting to anchor their identity. It is an act of authority. It is an act of stewardship. Adam was the steward of all creation. And when he named the animals, what he was doing in essence was acting as that steward, exercising authority, saying, this is the anchor of your identity, right? God had entrusted authority and stewardship to Adam. And that stewardship, that authority, catch this, you guys, stretches to everything that was created. Adam and Eve were stewards of the entire created order. They were supposed to expand their dominion to continue to move out over everything that was created. Everything. That includes angelic beings. Paul told the Corinthians, don't you know we will judge angels? Adam and Eve were made the stewards of the entire created order. They had authority over the entire, everything that God had made. I think that's part of the reason possibly that Satan the first fallen angel, was so ticked at humanity and had such a drive to destroy it. How could these little mud people possibly have that much glory, that much authority, that much power? And yet that is how God did it, right? That's exactly what God, he basically said to Adam and Eve, I give you this gift, this gift of stewardship. 
this gift of the creation. Now protect it and develop it. Adam was the first father of creation, right? And he acted with an authority that affected the entire family of humanity, including us. A father has tremendous authority in shaping his family. Think about it. What did you inherit from your father? For good or bad, you probably inherited possibly his nose, his eyes, um, certain mannerisms, right? His DNA. But beyond that, right, if your father was a faithful businessman, possibly you inherited his wealth. If he was the life of the party but a dud at the office, you may have inherited his debt or his bad work habits. Whether you like it or not, our, our parents have tremendous amounts of authority and power in our lives. They shape us. Our parents create for us, our fathers specifically, a legacy in our lives. They exercise that authority and it leaves a legacy that we have to live with for good or for bad. Our fathers shape us. How exactly did Adam handle this authority? How did Adam handle the weight of being the first father of humanity? (laughs) Not incredibly well. Turn one more page over in Genesis. Take a look at Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, we find that uh, Adam and Eve didn't handle this incredibly well. Take a look at verses 1 through 13. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. We find out from later Scripture that this was, in fact, that demonic force, Satan, the fallen angel that I mentioned earlier, uh, coming in to disrupt. He said to the woman, did God actually say to you, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you shall surely not die. For God knows that the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw it, the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took and ate its fruit. And she gave some to her husband. You guys, I want you to notice that one of the most damning phrases in the entire scripture. Gave it to her husband who was with her. And he ate. And the eyes of both were opened. And they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The man and his wife hid themselves in the presence of the Lord because in the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you walking, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who you gave to me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? She said, the serpent, that one you put in the garden, deceived me, and I ate. All right, pause there for a second. An incredibly tragic turn in the story of humanity. This passage is often called the fall or the great rebellion. Adam and Eve in this passage rebel against God. God had given them a single command. There's one tree in the midst of the garden that you shall not eat. That one tree, you can have everything else, but I'm going to give you one opportunity in a sense to obey, right? To, to demonstrate your love for me by submitting to me. Adam and Eve rebel against that one rule. They disobey the one command and they, and they eat. 
You guys, it wasn't about the fruit. It was about who would be at the center of the created order. It was about who would get the glory. It was about who would have ultimate authority. Adam and Eve reject God as the center. They reject God as the authority of their lives. And God said, in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And so they introduced death through their rebellion, right? Now, they didn't die physically the day they ate the fruit. We know that, right? They, they had a conversation with God. God kicks them, ends up kicking them out of the garden. And uh, they end up going on and living lives and, and having kids and, and starting um, this whole fun drama that we now experience and we call life, right? Um, so what does it mean that, that in the day you'll eat of it, you shall surely die? Well, here's the thing. Death is not ceasing to exist. Death is, at the heart of it, a separation from life. And death always begins spiritually before it manifests itself physically. In the day they rebelled against God, they were separated from God, the source of life. And in that separation, they spiritually died. And as a result of that, they later experienced physical death, the separation of their souls from their bodies, right? They don't cease to exist. They just get separated from what makes life worth living, the source of life. And the consequences are incredibly tragic, you guys. Genesis 3 is is by far the most tragic story ever told. Look what happens to every relationship as a result of their rebellion, right? First of all, like in in verse 8, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. There's a death, a separation in the relationship between them and God. God would come and walk with them in the cool of the day. At the end of the day, after they had worked hard in joy and and put their hands to the productivity of the stewardship that God had given them, God would come at the end of the day and simply be with them. Walk with them. Delight in them as they delight in Him. And for the first time in the created order, mankind felt their separation from God. And instead of feeling welcomed into His presence, they felt condemned by His holiness. Instead of feeling the warmth of His love, they felt the threat of judgment. Instead of hearing the invitation, they just heard the danger. And so what did they do? They hid themselves. And we've been hiding ourselves from God ever since. Hiding behind our performance, hiding behind our religion, hiding behind our morality, hiding behind our excuses, hiding behind our defenses. We have been hiding from God ever since. There's a disruption, a separation, a death in our relationship with God. But it also impacts their relationship with themselves. Take a look at verse 7. And then the eyes of both of them were opened right after they ate, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves loincloths. What is all this about nakedness? Why why is this so bad? Like all of a sudden it's like, oh no, we're physically naked. Yesterday it was great. Today, oh, not so much. It's not about physical nakedness, it's about exposure. For the first time in their lives, they understood the power of shame. For the first time in their lives, 
they had the compulsion to hide. They introduced every pathological disorder mankind has experienced since. In that moment, they experienced the overwhelming sense of guilt and shame and the need to hide. See, they brought death into relationship with themselves. They now suddenly had that critic's voice in the back of their head, the one that every single one of us is born with, the one that says, you are not good enough. You are not smart enough. You are not fast enough. You are not intelligent enough. You are not beautiful enough. You will never measure up. It's a death in their relationship with themselves. Verse 16, it also disrupts their relationship with uh, community, with others. In verse 16, in speaking to Eve, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between her offspring and your offspring. Oh, jump down to the next verse. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. The essence of what she's saying is all of these things used to be marked by peace and harmony and joy. Motherhood, family, the tightest, closest form of community is now going to be marked instead of by community, by competition. Instead of by joy, by pain. There will be a death in the the core relationship of humanity, of community. What was meant to be childbearing and and child-rearing, a joyful celebration of worship to God, a celebration of community now becomes warfare. Anybody who is the the parent of a toddler knows this, right? Your child comes out ready to seize control of the world, right? They, They come out thinking they are the center and they are going to, with a death grip, hold on to being the center. I will be the king of the universe, right? That same sin nature that was birthed in Adam and Eve is birthed in our children, And it creates the tension of toddlerhood and young childhood and teenagers. And and even as they go into adolescence and the struggle we continually have to convince them we love them, but they can't be the center of the universe. The struggles we have in our own marriages. Two people who love each other are committed to each other in covenant, right? And yet we're constantly struggling to honor one another, to submit to one another, to love one another. What was supposed to be marked as the closest, most intimate form of human relationship is now often marked by shame and guilt and, and struggle and, and, and power and, and difficulty. Our relationships with each other. Adam and Eve felt this very keenly. Their first two kids, Cain and Abel, committed the first murder in human history. How's that for a Mother's Day treat? When your first two children, one ends up murdering the other, right? It's a brokenness. It's a death brought into human relationships. It goes beyond that in verses 17 and 18. But to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. You shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. You will physically die. And while you're alive, this, this creation that was supposed to yield joyfully to your hand 
As, as, as in the same way your family was supposed to be this thing marked by joy and unity, your productivity, your work, your, your culture making was supposed to be marked by life and fruitfulness. And now it's going to rise up against you. Work is going to be onerous. Work is going to be hard. Work is going to work against you. Creation itself is broken and will rise up against you. You will now experience earthquakes and tornadoes and tsunamis, and you will experience the wrath of an inarticulate creation rising up under the brokenness of death. Man's relationship with creation was broken. Genesis 3 gives us a profound insight into the suffering of humanity. It gives us no simple answers because there are no simple answers for suffering because when you're suffering, it just hurts. But it does give us a framework to understand suffering. Why is there brokenness in the world? Why do people do evil things? Why am I having such a difficult time being the person I know I should be and want to be? It's because of our inheritance from Adam. It's because we've inherited death. And every key relationship of life has been deeply affected and broken. The center has been knocked off kilter. And as a result, everything around us promises glory but cannot deliver. We live in the glorious ruin in which we see reflected in creation and even in ourselves the glory of God, but it is ruined by the presence of sin. And so everything promises life but never fully delivers. So we spend our lives chasing things that can't satisfy, eating things that will never nourish, trying to obtain what we can never get. That is the inheritance of Genesis chapter 3, a life of futility, pursuing what can be never gained. But God didn't leave us in that state. God promised to send a a Savior, even right here in Genesis 3, while he is explaining the consequences of mankind's rebellion, he, he makes a promise. Verse 14, and Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above all the beasts of the field, in your belly you shall go, and the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. And you shall bruise his heel. In speaking to the satanic forces that work against God and against his glory and creation, God says, you haven't won. Because I'm going to put an enmity between you and humanity. They're not going to join your team. And not only that, there will be one, a seed of the woman, a son of the woman. There will be one that will crush you. Where Adam failed, he will succeed. Where Adam succumbed, he will stand strong. Where you crushed the head of Adam, this one, you'll bruise his heel, but he'll crush your head. He will undo your authority. He will undo the death that you have invited into the created order. I will send a son of Adam And this one will crush your head even though you bruise his heel. So God promises to send another human who will succeed where Adam failed. You guys, when Jesus was incarnate, when Jesus was born in the flesh, we see that as the profound plot twist that was promised right here in Genesis chapter 3. 
Adam was created in the likeness of God. And now we see God being created in the likeness of man. In Adam, we see failure and rebellion. In Jesus, we see faithfulness and obedience. The first Adam failed. He rebelled against God and then he blamed his wife. Jesus succeeded. He obeyed God even to the point of death in order to save his wife, his bride, his people, the church, those who have believed in him. In calling Jesus the last Adam, the Bible is making a clear point. There is a new steward of creation, a new human who will be a new father of a new creation and a new family in that creation. This is what we had to catch you guys. Jesus succeeded not just as God, Jesus succeeded as man. Jesus, the human, obeyed lived the life we should have lived, measured up in every way we failed, and Adam failed. He stepped into Adam's shoes, took his responsibility, and didn't fail in his failure, but instead stepped into his failure. In fact, he took Adam's sin and ours and became Adam's substitute and our substitute in the judgment that Adam deserved and we deserve. He died. And death is a result of sin. Jesus didn't sin. He died our death, Adam's death. He came under the, the outpouring of the wrath of God. The righteous judge, the creator of all things, as our substitute and our savior. Because he lived the perfect life, he was qualified to die the perfect death. And when he came back to life, it proved that the price was paid. It proved that God was satisfied in regard to Adam's sin and our sin as children of Adam. It proves that there is a new father, a new steward of the human race. And this is why he's given the title of last Adam. Do you see what that implies? implies that as the steward, he now has a new creation over which he has authority, right? He is the father of a new human race. It is interesting that he is specifically called the last Adam. Not the second Adam, but the last one. You know why? Because he is the last steward the world will ever need. He is the last king because he's the right king. He measured up in all the ways we failed. He is the last one that we need. He is the last one that will ever be given. He is the last Adam because he stepped up where Adam fell down. Because he succeeded, he has all the authority that God entrusted to Adam, now entrusted to him. Where the first Adam rebelled and brought death to every relationship, Jesus, Jesus succeeded and restores life. Notice our verses again. I'm going to put them back on the screen from 1 Corinthians 15. 
The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit, a new steward who was able to give life as a result of his victory. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man from heaven. Notice that he's called the last Adam, but he is called the second man. The second human. Why would Jesus be called the second human? There were like tons of people (laughs) between Adam and Jesus. Why is he called the second human? I think it's because he was only the second human who ever lived a full human life. He was the only person that was human as humans were created to be since Adam. He is the only one that was actually born in life with God. Experiencing the fullness of life, the purpose of life, the vigor of life. He understood what it meant to live in the outpouring of the delight and presence of God, even as he worked out the purpose and meaning of that life. He's the only, the second human who ever lived that experienced life as God intended it to be experienced. Only the second human to ever experience what it meant to be fully human. But he was not the last because he came to redeem and restore, to forgive and make new. So what does it mean when Jesus says, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me? It means that he now no longer has just the authority of God, just, (laughs) he now has the authority of man. He is the steward of all creation. He is the last Adam, the perfect Adam. He is the perfect king, the perfect son of Adam to sit on the perfect throne of David and usher in a new kingdom. You guys remember all the ways that the first Adam's rebellion brought death? Think about all the ways the last Adam's act of obedience and invitation restore life, right? The last Adam restores life in our relationship with God. We talked about this last week, right? He, he gives us peace with God. We were enemies of God in our sin. We were on the other side. We, we, we lived for our own glory. We lived for our own purpose, And you're like, no, man, my good works outweighed my bad. You have no good works. Not in God's eyes. Even your good works are motivated by evil motives. Right? Because of the work of Christ, we now have peace with God because we stand in his record, not ours. His obedience, not our rebellion. We stand on his merit, not our own. We have peace with God. This is the foundation and greatest blessing that comes from the resurrection of Christ. The sovereign God of the universe looks at you and now says, you are my son, you are my daughter, in whom I delight because I delight in my son. You've believed in Christ, you're covered with Christ. You have peace with God, right? But beyond that, you have a restored sense of relationship with yourself. Because you have peace with God, you can now experience the peace of God. The inner working of the work of Christ that frees us back to the the peace, the joy, the wholeness, the purpose of life. It frees us from the pathologies that drive us. 
the addictions that enslave us, the false purposes that misdirect us. It frees us to once again pursue the glory of God and living in the overflow of His joy. We can once again experience peace of God. Our guilt has been taken because Christ paid. Our shame has been removed because He stood in it so we could stand in His dignity. Our relationship with others. As God recreates us, He doesn't recreate us individually. He recreates us into a community, a new community called the church, His body, His bride. And in that process... He is, he is working out new relational dynamics that aren't based on power, but on love. That are not based on competition, but community. He is creating a new people to inhabit a new earth. A people marked by love and defined by generosity and joy and freedom instead of fighting and clamoring, and jealousy, and envy. And He does it so that we can once again have a new relationship with creation. God will once again, through Christ, bring heaven back to earth. Do you realize that the purpose in believing in Christ is not to get you into heaven, but to get heaven into you? Not to get you out of the earth into the clouds, but to get heaven out of the clouds and back on earth. We look at the final chapters of the Bible and we don't see everybody being taken out of the earth and up into heaven. We see heaven coming down to earth. A new Jerusalem that comes down and reestablishes the authority of God on earth through the agency of the last Adam. The second man who once again ushers in Life as it was meant to be lived. He makes all things new. See, when Jesus says, all authority has been given to me on earth as it is in heaven, he is giving us the greatest news we have ever received. We have a king worth submitting to. We have a savior worth believing in. We have a friend worth trusting. We have an invitation to life. So what do we do with this? Jesus rose from the dead. What that means is that we currently live in the overlap of the ages. We are living at the end of the age of Adam and at the beginning of the age of the last Adam. We live in a world that is still marked by the brokenness of sin, that is still suffering under the rebellion of mankind, that is still dealing with um, death in all the manifestations we discussed. And yet we are also living in the birth of a new age. And as we believe in Jesus, we start tasting the joy and I start experiencing the joy of what is to come. It is that tension that the theologians call the already not yet tension of the age. It's already been won, but not yet fully realized. It's already ours, but it is not yet fully experienced. We're in this period in which we are waiting for Jesus to come back for the last Adam to come and establish his kingdom. We live in the overlap of the ages. And that means we only really have one rational course of action. First of all, believe in Jesus. Not just about him, but in him. He is a living Savior, a risen Savior, who invites us into relationship. He doesn't say simply believe things about me. He says, come and dine with me. Come 
and I will give you life. He calls you to a joyful trust and submission to Him as Savior. Secondly, it means that we need to live in the light of the new day. We need to live every day in light of the resurrection. There are things around us that are fading. There is an age that is dying. How foolish would it be if we simply filled our vision with the fading glories of this world? All the things that we as children of Adam chase to try to make ourselves happy, success, power, wealth, influence, pleasure. It's all passing away. See, we as followers of Christ have an invitation to live for the age that is coming, to live in this day, for this day, for the glory of God, but in such a way that we are not focusing everything on this day. The resurrection promises us a new day. It promises us a true future. See, here's the thing. We can live for what will last. It doesn't mean that we change what we do. We still live our lives. We still work hard and love well, and we still develop who God has given us to be, but we do it not for the reasons that the world does it, to make ourselves great, to try to make ourselves happy, to somehow try and find fulfillment, to continue pursuing God outside of relationship with God. We do it for the glory of God and in the joy of our salvation. We live for what will last for what will bring true success, true power, true wealth, true pleasure. We get to live this day, today, in light of the resurrection, with joy and gratitude and awe and anticipation of the new day to come. It means that we suffer differently. We rejoice differently. We experience success differently because we know what is dying and passing away and what is coming. And we order our lives around what will last. So moving into response, I have some questions for you to consider. Where do you need your king to renew your hope? Where do you need him to give you life today? Every single person in this room is suffering under the death that was introduced into the created order by our first parents. Every single person in this room has imitated our first parents by reproducing death in our own lives. Separation, separation from God, dislocation from ourselves, separation from others, separation with the created order. Where do you need God to restore life to you today? Because it's his to restore. Do you you realize that? Not yours. It's a gift, not something you earn Where do you desperately need to come before your king and plead for him to unleash his power, to meet you in your pain, to free you into his joy, to deliver you into the freedom of his kingdom? He will progressively free you now until the day he returns to completely establish a new kingdom. Where do you need growth and freedom and joy today? Go to your king. Stop fighting to do it yourself. Secondly, where are you filling your vision with what is temporary and passing instead of what is permanent and fulfilling? Where are you living for the wrong things? Investing in the wrong things. Desperately trying to gain or accomplish the wrong things instead of living for what is permanent and fulfilling. How do you do what you do now for the glory of God instead of your own? 
How do you do what you already do in light of the resurrection for what is permanent instead of trying to build a permanent resonance in an age that has no permanence? Thirdly, will you live today? Like today, this day, in light of the resurrection? Will you remind yourself this very minute that Jesus rose from the dead? And it changes everything. Everything. The way you relate to your spouse, the way you parent, the way you relate to your work, the way you pursue life. Will you live today in the joy of the resurrection? Your Savior is risen. And a new age has dawned. And while we live in the darkness of this dying age, in the struggle and in the pain and the difficulty of what was left, we have already been introduced into what is to come. Will you live today in light of the resurrection? We're going to move into a time of response. Um, ask you to take some space and Just pray and let God speak to you. As we're taking that time, we're going to take our offering. There's a chance for our members, regular attenders to give. And we give as family, realizing that we are investing into the gospel, the spread of the gospel into this community, the good news of a Savior who has come, who lived and died and rose again so that we might have hope And he has entrusted this incredible message to us that others might also hear and have hope. So we give in the joy of our salvation and we give to the purpose of mission. So give generously and joyfully this morning. If you're a guest with us, we're really grateful you're here. We're thankful that you've shared the morning with us. You have a worship response card in your bulletin. We would love for you to fill that out. Put your name on there, drop it in the basket when it comes around. If you have prayer requests, put those on there. I pray over those every week. The leadership team prays over those every week. We'd love to pray with you and for you. And then we're going to share communion, but I'll introduce that separately. Let's go ahead and pray. Move into our time of response. Father, I I thank you that um, we have such an incredible invitation. An invitation to a new family, a new start, a new life, a new purpose, not marked by the choices we've made, not made less glorious by our mistakes or failures, not in any way tainted by our inability to change ourselves. It is an invitation to grace, an invitation to celebrate, That everything we have, we've been given. That everything we have that doesn't measure up has already been paid for and removed. Everything that we have that is worth keeping is redeemed and is being restored. Father, free us into living in the glory of your Son.